The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get a little bit more insight on the macro front and the developments here because it's that debt ceiling debate. It's taking over the markets, I would argue, overshadowing some of the other stories like inflation, Chinese growth, geopolitics. There's a lot of doom and gloom out there. Uh, but let's not dwell on the bad. Uh, let's bring in Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Audrey Child Freeman, our chief G10 FX strategist over at Bloomberg Intelligence, and uh, Dwayne Wright, senior government analyst with BI as well. Uh, Dwayne, I want to start with you and talk to us a little bit about about the developments here. I believe Kevin McCarthy has now said uh, that there are negotiations happening this morning, but what's the sticking point? What can't they agree on? Uh, well, thanks. Uh, I think it's the same conversation we've been having over the last, or we've been hearing about uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and this is yet another mini storm that we think will end up, before we get to the calm, it, it ends up uh, being around what level of spending cuts do Republicans want or, and they're willing to accept? What level of spending cuts are Democrats willing to agree to? And there's about a $130 billion gulf between the two parties. Uh, you know, we're talking about going back to last year's spending or uh, working from this year's spending. There's other policies at play related to unspent COVID money. Um, there's what to do about defense spending as much as Republicans want to dial down or dial back the spending on discretionary spent, uh, funding. They also want to increase spending on the defense side, which Democrats have said is, is a bit of a non-starter. And then you have all these other policies that deal with uh, some of the social safety net programs. Should we have work requirements for health care, specifically in the Medicaid program? Democrats have said no, and Republicans want to expand on work requirements into health care. So a lot of the, the sticking points that we saw that were all in the Republican House passed bill that Democrats said no to, uh, those are still on the table, and those are still the, the sticking points that they're trying to work through. Audrey, uh, I want to bring you in here because we've seen the dollar rising uh, for the most part over the course of the month of May, the Bloomberg dollar index up again today. I want to get your take. How are markets pricing in these debt ceiling concerns, uh, specifically around the dollar? Uh, so, so the dollar, the dollar rebound has to be seen really after quite a long period of underperformance, and the market uh, a couple of weeks or a few weeks ago, as you said, started to look quite underweight dollar. And I suspect, you know, if you go into this as as the debt ceiling deadlines uh, looms and uncertainty continues to increase with regard to that matter, I suspect that there will be an incentive to 
close those underweight dollar position and just wait and see what happens because there's an element of uncertainty on, on the impact that that default would have on the dollar. Obviously, it's negative, it's structurally negative. It adds on to the whole theme of de-dollarization. However, in the near term, if that leads to financial market turmoil, which I suspect it would, uh, and that means funding problems, that could actually push the dollar higher. So I, I kind of feel that's one of the reasons why the dollar has been uh, pushing higher in the, in the past in the past few weeks, but I feel there's no strong conviction at the moment uh, in the market. Yeah, it feels purely defensive, essentially, when you're looking at kind of the way some of these speculative funds are positioning. Audrey, to follow up on that though, as soon as this dollar debate kind of disappears or there's a solution or a resolution of of some sort, is the no-brainer trade and unwinding of that essentially dollar weakness? I think so. Um, however, compared to two or three months ago, where the, you know it was the compelling trade to have on, there's a kind of fresh element of uncertainty creeping into the market. In particular, I would mention the the pace of the Chinese economic recovery uh, and the implications that would have for for the global economic outlook, uh, for currencies like the euro, the the Aussie dollar. Uh, so the answer to your question is yes. But um, I, I don't. I think there's a. Li- it's a little bit less straightforward than it was. Let's say, you know, in in kind of early early January. Dwayne, I want to bring you back in here. Talk us through the timeline for the next couple of. Oh boy, we're running very close to that X date, that June first to X date. Talk us through the timeline of what you're hearing from lawmakers. Uh, well, the, they're still talking, um, and and. I think there's a big question as to whether June 1st is the real X date or if it's something after that. Uh, you know, up to maybe last week or early this week, the Secretary Yellen had been very strong in terms of saying June 1 is the X date and then kind of got a little squishy, which I think served as a bit of a, a pressure release valve uh, as far as these conversations go. But there, there are going to be at some point over the next week or so uh, that pressure is going to ramp up as we get to June 1st and potentially maybe get past June 1st. Uh, and you got to think about it from a procedural standpoint in the House and even in the Senate. Once a deal is reached between the president and the speaker, it's going to take about three days to get out of the House. And that's because Speaker McCarthy has said any bill that gets passed out of the House, lawmakers will have three days to review. So you have to build in 72 hours. You then have to build in some more time to potentially get it through a Senate that may not want to move on it as quickly, depending on whether you're on the right or left and you don't like the the deal and you want to slow things down. And so I, I think as we're looking at the timeline over the next several days, you really need to start to see something happen by around the 1st. Uh, in order to really get uh, a bill done and, and really stave off uh, potential default. 
the X date, I think, such a crucial uh, thing to talk about because, yes, it's June 1st. We're getting headlines right now that Janet Yellen uh, reaffirms that June 1st deadline. But at the end of the day, look at what some of these Wall Street banks are saying. The range goes from June 1st right. to June 15th. And uh, then you have the the real market bears. You're saying, actually, the real X date for the markets is May 26th, so right before that Memorial Day weekend. Um, Audrey Child Freeman of uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, we thank you, as always, along with... Uh, Dwayne Wright, thank you as well, our senior government analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Folks, the doom and gloom is just going to ramp up from here. Isn't Making it, me a little bit scared as he was talking about all those, how long it needs yeah. uh, in order to just get past these procedural votes. Yes, yeah. I feel bad for those staffers. Stick with us. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's bring in some experts here. Diana Rosero-Pena, equity research analyst over at Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us alongside a personal favorite of mine and uh, a Dallas resident. Again, another reason to love him. Brendan Case, our Bloomberg News retail reporter. Brendan, I want to start with you here. The difference between a slowing consumer and a collapsing consumer. Are we there yet? Well, I think that we have to stick with slowing for the moment. And we're definitely seeing signs of that all over the place, you know, starting with Target and Walmart, you know, saying that last week, Plenty of additional signs now. Um, Petco reported results today, not a huge company, obviously, but sort of an interesting category because people tend to spend pretty heavily on their pets. And there again, you know, they're seeing strong business in the essentials such as food, but a pullback from the kind of toys and, and leashes that, that people would buy more of in, in, in good times. I don't think that we're, that we're, ready to talk about a collapse yet, but I do think it's a watch item. And, you know, I don't think that anybody would say that we've hit bottom at this point. Diana, uh, Brendan just mentioned some of that discrepancy we've seen between that spending on things like food, both for humans and for pets, it turns out, um, as well uh, against the sort of discretionary items, whether it's leashes, collars, and toys at Petco, or um, electronics, perhaps, at, at places like Walmart. I mean, how much pressure does this actually put on the companies uh, in terms of margin? Like, aren't they happy that things that people are still buying their stuff? Yes. So basically what uh, I got from the call uh, earlier this morning uh, from Petco was that there's a bifurcation of the consumer. You have uh, consumers that are very dedicated 
to the health uh, and wellness of their pets. And even on uh, consumables such as food, you have people trying to buy premium food, which obviously is more expensive than uh, regular uh, uh, pet food. So uh, there's that, uh, but there's also that seeking for value that you see for Target and Walmart. Now, this is obviously this the second part, the seeking value is a little bit problematic for um for companies because usually the essentials are lower margin. They tend to be lower margin compared to the discretionary category. So you, you will see in addition to labor and all of the supply chain costs increasing in the past couple of years, you see an added pressure of lower margin items being more in demand. So that is then necessarily a a function of that kind of recessionary call, it feels like, essentially that you're going to start attracting the higher-end consumer to more perhaps generic goods, uh, at least in the case of, of Walmart, for example. When does that slow completely from from the consumer's point of view? Well, I think it has to do with um, consumer sentiment uh, has a lot in play. Um, obviously, unemployment um, or lack thereof, uh, it seems that obviously it, this this is a, an unusual um, economic quote unquote downturn because uh, unemployment seems to be uh, quite low compared to you know previous recessions or slowdowns or something like that. So um, yeah, I would say it's mostly on a, a consumer consumer sentiment and I think how comfortable they feel with the future and their ability to pay their bills going forward. Brendan, what have you heard from some of these executives about the potential for the consumer to just like simply hit a wall, stop going to stores, stop going online simply because the inflationary pressures on their pocketbook are too much or um, or what, what would it take essentially? Have any executives kind of addressed this? You know, I don't think that that, that is something that they've really rung the alarm bell about. They're talking much more about slowing. And if you take a step back from some of the kind of the big mass market retailers for one second, you know, there's still signs of strength out there too, you know, it's sort of surprisingly strong sales at Abercrombie and Fitch, you know, we, we heard about this morning, um, you know, there's signs of, of, of progress even at, at, at Kohl's right now. Um, so more of a mixed bag than a sense of things falling apart. But that said, if you listen to Walmart and Target, they're both pretty cautious about the second half. Um, and I think that one thing that's going through their minds is that the rate increases from the Fed, tightening financial conditions, you know, a lot of that is, is, is probably still an effect that we have yet to feel the full force of. And so, you know, they're, 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 they are taking a very, a very cautious view, albeit without talking about consumers just flat out hitting a wall. Yeah. When you think of that sort of looking ahead timeline, do you draw any consensus from what you've heard about when uh, things might start looking up again? It feels like it's too soon to talk about that. You know, it feels like the question that's in the front of the mind for the, the big retailers is, okay, is this going to get worse? You know, do we end up having a recession? If so, when? Um, it doesn't feel 
as though they are talking yet about kind of seeing, you know, rays of light in the distant horizon. It feels much more like, you know, watchful waiting, lots of caution, um, and just not wanting to not wanting to promise too much. So Diana, in our last minute or so here, talk to us about today's earnings story with Kohl's. KSS is the ticker, folks, higher by about eight and a half percent for the stock. Diana, about 45 seconds. What did Kohl's do right? Yeah, I think going back to what we said earlier is uh, the consumer seeking value and um, having that um, alternative for them. It, it seems that that drove a lot of their sales as well. So, um, you know, like going back to what Brennan said, it, it's it's consumers just being cautious and the executive of these companies uh, recognizing that we're, you know, it's difficult out there right now. And I think it's going to be uh, darker before it starts to be light again. Brendan, 10 seconds, putting you on the spot. Anything to add? Going to watch Best Buy and Costco on Thursday. A lot of signals there about discretionary spending and higher end consumers. Well, we will definitely have you both back. We thank you, as always, Diana Rosero-Pena, Equity Research Analyst over at Bloomberg Intelligence, and Brendan Case, our star retail reporter over in Dallas, Texas. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Now, I've been so excited for this uh, discussion, Kriti, because we're going to talk about um, Noom and the potential for um, weight loss drugs to be part of this overall discussion on health. We bring in Linda Anagawa, Chief of Medicine, uh, as well as our Sam Fazelli. He's a senior pharma analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Linda, you were brought on to... Uh, a, to, to expand the ability of Noom to bring in these weight loss drugs. Take us through the thinking here, because isn't Noom all about um, discipline and improving your healthiness of your lifestyle, and yet we're turning to medication potentially to bring down weight in uh, people who are obese? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll tell you about New Med. We're a program dedicated to fighting the disease of obesity using all of the best available scientific tools that we have. And what makes us unique is that we are still combining our suite of personalized psychological tools along with telehealth services to help people achieve not just the lasting weight loss, but also the improved health outcomes. I mean, that's so interesting um, because these GLP-1 drugs seem to really be a game changer in the overall idea of weight loss, um, whether it's Ozempic, whether it's um, the various other uh, options out there. How do you f- how do you fit these in for someone who's coming to Noom Med? So the introduction of the new highly effective anti-obesity medicines without a doubt have revolutionized this landscape for sustainable weight loss. You know, but for the millions of Americans taking these medications, 
lasting success is really not often achievable without having that anchor in behavioral change. I mean, as a doctor, I've prescribed these medications hundreds of times, and I've seen some people even gain weight on them. So New Med really has the only clinical program that's built on our best-in-class flagship behavior change platform. And that gives us an incredibly powerful way to address both the biology as well as the psychology that's necessary in the fight against obesity. I want to bring in Sam Fazelli here. He leads our pharma coverage over at Bloomberg Intelligence. Sam, double question here. First, set the stage for us in terms of the landscape of, of, of the industry and of these products. And then, you know, feel free to ask Linda a question yourself. Oh, sure. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so obviously, th there's been drugs that have been in development or used for many years for obesity, but but very few of them have actually been successful really commercially until until recently because the percentage of weight loss that they were giving, perhaps some of the side effect issues that they had were just basically not not induce, conducive to, to use. Now we've got these drugs which have got pretty good safety, at least in diabetic patients, have been used for years. Not at these doses though. And now you get significant efficacy. And I think um, Dr. Anagawa, you've mentioned in there, or the company's mentioned in the press release the 12 point uh, uh, odd percent 12.4 percent I think that you get with um, Wigovi at 68 weeks whereas now soon we're going to have um, um, Lily's uh, Terzepatide or which is the same agent used in Munjaro for diabetes which is clocking at around 18 percent uh, placebo adjusted weight loss so these are significant numbers and and I think both companies are trying to even push it further where do you think that would go in terms of uh, um, the level of interest. Do you think there'll be major switching or do you think there's so much demand that between uh, the two drugs, people will take whatever they can get their hands on? You know, I think that the landscape of these medications is going to continue to evolve. Absolutely, terzepatide is going to take us another step forward in what we are able to offer our patients suffering from this disease. What Noom's really looking to, though, is not even what's immediately available, but what's coming down the horizon in the next two years, five years. Um, and I think fundamentally at the core of things, we still have to remember, sorry, that as good as the drug trials look, they were all done with lifestyle change hand in hand. So that still fundamentally has to be our anchor. Oh, I absolutely agree. I, th I think the, um, y you know, there's no point just reducing food intake and not changing your lifestyle to try and get more exercise, more correct eating. So, that, and, and that that's, I'm assuming, the, the main push that you're putting in there. But actually th thinking about drugs, because at the end of the day, I'm a drug analyst, <laughs> If you think forward and you see these, um, the combination of lifestyle and the drugs, do you think it will make a big difference to people if they didn't have to uh, inject themselves and, and one day there were some orals available? Do you think that that's a, that would be a big um, plus for uh, fitting into the whole regime that you're, you're thinking about? I definitely do. And there certainly are drugs in development that have oral formulations. And not only will those probably be more acceptable to patients, my other hope is that they might be less expensive as well, 
which would allow us to improve access to them more broadly. Dr. Linda, I mean, I want to ask, because the thing about these drugs, I guess the bad side of these drugs, is that once you're on them, it seems like you're on them forever or else you gain the weight back. Um, How do you at Noom think about this? Because, you know, if these drugs become a part of that treatment option, it, it feels weird to be on these drugs forever, especially when, you know, the weight loss that you're hoping for may be not, you know, that large. It's a great question. Noom's point of view is that we may be able to drive even better health improvements than the drugs alone because we've got significant published peer-reviewed studies in over 50 journals that show that our principles of psychological change when applied to our patients and users actually drive better long-term outcomes than the standard of care. So I think the jury is out on whether every single patient will absolutely need these medications lifelong. Uh, doctor, you um, interestingly segued into uh, the idea of outcomes. We do, we are awaiting some uh, controlled, sizable data for cardiovascular risk reduction of these drugs potentially. Uh, do, do you think that's uh, clearly? If you you then add better eating and, and more exercise to that, you're gonna you're gonna amplify that benefit. But do you think that's really important that the drugs do show that they're reducing? Um, cardiovascular risk? Do you think that your your patients, physicians are all looking for that? Absolutely. I mean, weight is really just one barometer, and it's not the greatest barometer of overall health. So if there's clear cardiovascular risk reduction, I think hopefully that will make the case for coverage by payers stronger, because that's one of the things that does stymie us in our attempt to treat this disease of obesity. So one of the the issues with these new drugs has been supply shortages, um, because people who don't necessarily qualify as uh, as obese, in a sense, um, have been pushing for these drugs. I mean, take Hollywood or take just people who have a couple extra pounds. Um, how do you see this from New Med's perspective as being, uh, can you deliver this drug for people who, you know, maybe don't have these some of these same um, medical concerns caused by obesity? New Med is really committed to strict qualification of any of our patients who may be seeking a prescription from us. And one of the ways that we do this is not just screening people by BMI, but utilizing video visits, which many in the space do not do, as well as metabolic blood testing, again, to help us risk stratify which patients are more likely to achieve the best benefits from these drugs and for whom it's really less critical. There's always a shared decision-making process between our clinicians and our patients. And ultimately, the clinicians are the ones who make that decision. They make that call. Dr. Linda Onigawa, Chief of Medicine over at Noom, alongside BI's Sam Fazelli, we thank you both. This is Bloomberg. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. It's all about health, but health with a twist. Health and drugs, maybe, yes, kind of encompass- encompassing this. Yeah. Um, and I'm so interested uh, to speak to our next guest because he has his finger on the pulse of the marijuana industry. Um, Fun stuff. I, so I've, all, I've only been back in the United States a short period of time, and I swear I smell weed everywhere in, the, in <laughs> New York City. It's been one of the biggest I surprises. Say, Park <laughs> Avenue at 5 p.m. is, uh, it just, it overwhelms you. It's a truly New York experience. Uh, folks, just so you guys know, Simone Foxman was in the Middle East for three years? Uh, three and a half. Three and a half years. She covered all of that FIFA coverage. Ain't um, no weed there. Really? No. Is it illegal? It's completely illegal. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. And even for medical purposes, I believe, um, which is uh, medical purposes of marijuana is something we're going to talk to our next next guest about. Yeah. Um, because this is just an exploding space. It is. Um, clearly, everyone acknowledges that there are benefits um, for uh, people who are going through any number of health issues. Yeah. And, and a fun fact, I should say, it, it's an exploding space now, but I think when it first kind of... I want to say at least kicked off in the markets. It was like 2018. I, the only reason I remember that is because that was my one of my very first beats at Bloomberg. I was the video game and this. cannabis reporter for stocks. It's true. Before it was like an actual coverage area. They gave uh, they gave the girl who's never played a video game in her life video game and cannabis stocks to cover. So that was fun. Uh, let's bring in our in our next guest, uh, Morgan Paxia, the co-founder of Poseidon Investment Management, uh, talking a little bit about investing in this market. But before we do that, talk to us about how you got. Uh, interested where where this kind of passion came from. Sure. Uh, well, thank you for having me. Uh, we started, my sister and I, Emily, uh, started Poseidon back in 2013. So we're about to celebrate our 10-year anniversary since we founded the company. We lost our parents to cancer when we were young, and um, our, our parents were believers that the war on drugs was unjust, um, should be ended. My mom was a nutritionist. She saw the health benefits of hemp as like a superfood, and my dad thought cannabis was something that should be a rightful choice um, as an American citizen instead of just only having alcohol if you want to just relax at the end of the day kind of thing. And um, when he was in hospice, uh, one of the nurses offered him cannabis. And that was in the 90s, so very not okay. And uh, and so he didn't do it. And we just felt that that was wrong, um, should have been available, and shouldn't have felt a stigma or a negative association to his family to not do something like that. Um, so that was why we started the firm. We, we saw it as an opportunity, as an opportunity for change, um, but also from a capital perspective as well. So now you're on the investment side of this. Um, clearly, the regulations still differ from state to state. Mm-hmm. Is overcoming that sort of the biggest hurdle from an investment side? Or you know, what needs to happen to make this industry, um, I guess, go a little bit more mainstream? So we are today, we're at 23 adult use legal states in the country. When we started, there were zero. Um, 
we just had Minnesota join, and there's something like, I think, 39 medical states. But you're right, it's all patchwork. Some states are doing it better than others. Um, some are thriving. Some are, are struggling a bit with illicit markets still being very prevalent. And we look at every state and analyze uh, if it's attractive or not from a, a capital deployment perspective. And you can see it in, in how the companies perform. You can look at it from their margin profiles, if you're looking at gross margins, operating margins. Um, even today, we're talking about free cash flows for some of the largest, most um, scaled businesses in the country, but it is a, a very fragmented space. It creates a lot of opportunity for consolidation um, as these businesses need to reach scale, even though, you know, ultimately the way we look at the industry today will look drastically different in 10 years. It still is very much an emerging market. So we think even though we've gone from zero to 30 billion in annual sales in this country, we're still at the beginning. So, blue button. Um, so how, you said in, in the next 10 years or so, in the next 10 years we'll have two, maybe three new presidential elections. Mm -hmm. How does that change that growth prospect? So great question. And, and one of the biggest challenges we're having is, is the states are progressing, but we need the federal government to also proceed. And like last week, Emily and I were just in D.C. Uh, meeting with senators and, and, and trade groups and, and lobbyists and, and the like, uh, because we have the safe banking initiative that's currently going through regular order. Um, first time ever hearing a banking reform in the Senate. Um, but we need these. We need the federal government to catch up. We need banking reform so that we're treated the same as any other business. We need uh, tax reform. We have this very onerous 280E tax code that we have to deal with. Um, so there's a lot of work to do at the federal level. And to your point, presidential cycles, where we fit in all of that is a, is a great question. Uh, but we're just trying to proceed forward, at least from a, a legislative perspective, and getting some primary pieces in place. And um, we think that, that will unlock a lot of growth. It it's certainly is helpful from a social justice perspective and also from a small business and safety perspective is to f have the federal government finally recognize that we are an American industry. Would the Safe Banking Act be a good step? I know that's something that um, uh, various, that seems to be gaining a little bit of momentum. Talk to me about how important that is. It, it's important uh, because right now we are, we are not treated the same. We are treated at a disadvantage to every other industry basically in this country. Um, and that really hurts the small businesses uh, the most um, because if you're large enough, you do have access to some primitive level banking, um, but we need this from a, a much more, from a depth perspective and we need to start somewhere. And so that's the way we think about safe banking is, is this is a starting point. It's already passed the house seven times, um, but this is the first time it's actually been heard in the Senate. Uh, we just had our first hearing last week, went pretty well. Um, it does seem like we have a decent amount of uh, uh, bipartisan support to get this through um, at least uh, to a floor vote, as long as it doesn't get um, expanded too much. If it stays pretty well focused, we think it's something that can get done. And, uh, and that's what we were uh, talking with them about last week. Um, and, and it was uh, great to see um, some of the minority groups, traded groups, also supporting this initiative and saying we need to be inclusive of capital markets because safe banking is a pretty narrow bill. But if you think about banking and financial services, it's kind of hard to just have a piece of it. You kind of have the, need the whole thing for the whole ecosystem and the, and the movement of money to work. Hmm. Uh, thinking about um, your investments as well, mm -hmm. um, what sorts of companies really uh, attract your attention? Where is their development in the marijuana space? Because I feel like there are so many growers now, that's maybe mm -hmm. the less exciting piece for many investors. Yep, we think access is, is 
really important at this part of the industry's life cycle. Um, so what that means is retail, um, being able to get direct access to the consumer in a legal way, um, because we think that is one of the best ways of combating the illicit market. And, and seeing markets, uh, you know, seeing new municipalities or new states that open up and create programs. Uh, Michigan's a great example of a state that has seen a high conversion rate of taking market share from the illicit market. Um, it's a good program, low pricing, lots of retail accessibility. Um, you said retail accessibility, which brings us kind of to more of a institutional um, embracing almost of the sector. Why haven't we seen more of that? Our investor base to date has been family offices and high net worth individuals. Um, institutions have been held largely outside because of things like not having uh, federal banking access. Yeah. And so that keeps a lot of institutional capital on the sidelines. And we think that does open up for a lot of change. And especially when you add in capital markets too. Um, you know, if you look at right now, the public companies trade on the CSC, uh, the OTC, um, they're not on listed exchanges. And so their volumes are, are a fraction of size because the participation is a fraction of the size. Um, and so we think there's huge steps forward that can happen when institutional capital can really start to participate. Yeah, and I mean, if you're a pension fund, it's hard to go to justify to your um, your participants, your uh, it's just hard to go and justify that if if it's not necessarily legal everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, there have been sort of co consolidation of some of these sellers of uh, of various cannabis products or hemp products. Um, how much? Is, is there some threat that pharma will come in and start distributing more and potentially push out the more interesting players in the space? Um, you know, good question. We look at pharma as, as largely participating more in a traditional pharmaceutical path um, where they would want to take drugs through like the FDA uh, and do that kind of stuff like GW Pharma did years ago. Um, we see other CPG or alcohol, tobacco like industries being more attracted to run it through their similar kind of pipelines. Um, for example, the, uh, the WSWA, I can't remember the acronym right now, but it's the, I think it's the Wholesale Wine and Spirits Trade Group. They want to be the national distributor of cannabis. So right now they're lobbying in DC saying, we should be the ones to run this because we already have all of this infrastructure to do that. And understand that makes a lot of sense when we're talking about interstate commerce, post-federal legalization. Yeah. Um, but right now we're still, you know, a couple steps behind that talking about retail access, getting these states legalized, and uh, and as I mentioned, you know, banking reform, taxation, those are, we think, are, you know, steps ahead right. uh, before um, uh, interstate commerce. A fascinating topic. I know Simone Foxman could probably ask you a million more questions. Morgan Paxi, a co-founder and managing partner of Poseidon Investment Management, we thank you as always. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. As they try to really crack down, let's ask our next guest this, Geetha Ranganathan, all over that. Geetha, does that count as inflation price increases from Netflix? <laughs> it typically has, hasn't it? Um, they've they've done a really, I think they've they've been really consistent in kind of raising their prices. You know, every twelve to eighteen months, and we've kind of seen the same, I think, a behavior pattern from consumers. Right? There's always that initial backlash. You'll see cancel Netflix kind of trending all over the place. 
But then eventually, I think the dust settles and, and people kind of come back because they do have the content that everybody wants. Yeah, I mean, we saw some, I guess, weakness out of, I think, Spain it was, people moving away um, from from being Netflix subscribers simply because uh, they, you know, because of policies that were extra policing on on using each other's accounts. You know, how crucial are, um, I guess, how, how big a reaction could we see in these numbers as this comes uh, to the United States in terms of subscribers? I think there's going to be a lot of near-term volatility and noise. I think there's absolutely no way to sugarcoat that. Remember, there are, you know, our Netflix has identified about 100 million households across the world that are currently using Netflix but not paying for it. Over a third of those are currently in the United States. Um, and so this is by far their biggest market. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the crackdown, obviously, and, and management has said this as well. They ex- they don't expect this to necessarily go smoothly. Uh, they do expect some kind of resistance from customers. Um, but I think what they're eventually seeing, and, and you brought up Spain, and they had rolled out um, this experimental kind of password policing in, in a few markets, Spain, uh, Portugal, uh, you know, New Zealand, and, and Canada were some of the bigger ones. And in Canada, what they actually did was they did see that initial uh, kind of negative reaction, but then, um, you know, customers then finally came around and they said that they have managed to not only get back uh, customers who canceled, but also kind of increase their subscriber base. So I think what they're hoping for is, you know, when, when this is all, when all is said and done, it does eventually help not only boost ARPU, uh, but also the subscriber base. But that might take a little bit of time. I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think we're necessarily going to see this in numbers like next quarter. Uh, it's definitely going to take a while to play out. So Geetha, how does this actually work? When you crack down on, on, on password sharing, doesn't that in- kind of violate privacy to some extent? Doesn't it include kind of tracking down IP addresses and what's your work, what's your home, what's your commute? How does this work in practice? I mean, Netflix has already been doing that. Um, so, you know, if you kind of uh, sign out outside of your home, for instance, they, you know, ask you to kind of confirm that it's you. So so they've already been doing this. And, and what they're doing right now is they're trying to identify a primary household um, you know, again, using that IP uh, address, and they're basically saying that anybody outside of that primary household uh, will need to pay. One of the things I've also been interested in is this new ad tier that you can get Netflix more cheaply um, if you don't mind seeing some ads. I think lower margin business, but more subscribers. You know, how does what is what's your forecast in terms of how that piece of the puzzle plays out? Yeah, so that's again they're again relatively new to the advertising game. Um, they haven't necessarily disclosed too many metrics, uh, although they did give a number just a, a few days ago in terms of the number of monthly active users that they have got so far on the platform, and it was I think fairly impressive, and more than what people were expecting. So they already have about five million uh, monthly active users. That translates to roughly about one to maybe one and a half million people who are 
probably paying for uh, the advertising tier. But again, that number wasn't necessarily disclosed by Netflix. That's just an estimate that's out there. Uh, again, it's small potatoes compared to like the big player in the field, which is Hulu, which probably has about 25 million people on the ad-based tier. So still long ways to go. Uh, but Netflix itself has said that they do expect their advertising business to eventually become um, bigger than Hulu, probably contribute to about 10 to 15 percent of their total revenue. So they are looking at this. They are you know, in this for the long game. They are looking at advertising as becoming a substantial portion of their revenue stream. So, Geetha, do we ever see Netflix offering some sort of product similar to that of Hulu uh, or even cable in that they're offering kind of live programming, live TV, live coverage of events like, I don't know, the coronation or sports or anything like that? Is that Netflix's future? So they have dabbled a little bit, um, you know, with with live programming, but I wouldn't necessarily say that they want to go into it in a big way. Um, again, you know, Netflix, the whole genesis of Netflix has kind of been the uh, the antithesis of, of live programming, right? It, it has to be on demand. Having said that, though, I mean, you know, I don't think they're necessarily averse to trying out things. I mean, you know, we kind of saw, uh, you know, different, uh, I, I guess, different flavors of it, whether it's, you know, a, a reunion for a, a dating series or even, you know, a baking competition. So they are trying different things. Again, I just don't think it would necessarily be a big focus for them going forward. A reunion for a dating series. Geetha, are you a Love Island watcher? <laughs> am I sensing that? <laughs> uh, sure am. <laughs> all, all, all for the work, all for the job. I get it. Um, Geetha, what about the gaming piece of the equation? Netflix said that they were kind of experimenting with that. How is that going? So again, we, you know, it's been uh, just like what they've said with their advertising strategy, which is, you know, kind of a crawl, walk, run approach. It's been very similar in the gaming field also. So again, they have not necessarily... So they've, what they have done is they've gone out and they've bought a lot of these smaller independent studios. They haven't made any big splashy acquisition. And I think the general thinking is, yes, they have a few games on their service. I don't think it's necessarily moved the needle in terms of membership. Maybe it has deepened some level of engagement, but I think ultimately if they really want to make a, a big... Um, you know, if they really want to kind of, uh, you know, move or, or do something game-changing in in kind of the gaming space, I, I think they have to finally make an acquisition because so far we haven't necessarily seen any um, significant, um, you know, engagement metrics or or even membership metrics. Can you speculate which uh, acquisition or any potential targets that they might be interested in? It's very hard to say at this point, just kind of given the regulatory environment out here. Uh, I'm not sure the regulators are generally in favor of, you know, big tech or, or even media tech kind of going after a big um, uh, company, which is why they've kind of kept it. They've done, you know, just these very, very small kind of independent studios. They're more kind of in that build mode. Um, but eventually, I think everybody's fair game, right? Whether it's an electronic arts or a take two, it just it just is going to come down to what makes the most sense for them and their portfolio. Geetha, I got to ask, are you a Bridgerton fan? I am. And oh I my absolutely gosh. loved the new season. The Queen Charlotte? Yes. Oh my gosh, I'm obsessed. Simone, have you seen it? I haven't seen it, but I have read all the Bridgerton books. Okay, that doesn't count. Right Come on, this is a Netflix hey. segment. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I love it. I gotta say, I just finished Queen Charlotte and I cried, absolutely cried, Geetha. Uh, your thoughts, 30 seconds. Oh, I absolutely loved it. And I loved how they kind of brought in that whole historical element. I mean, this was, 
you know, a part of history with King George III. Yeah. I thought it was done really, really well. The emotional aspect, of course, the sets, the costumes, the actors, I mean, everything. Just absolutely loved it, just like you, Kriti. Yeah, I, I totally, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but you guys have to go see it because it's so different in from the first two seasons that it kind of does its own thing. For what it's worth, she wasn't in the books at all. I know, That's but cool. like creative, creative license, uh, Shonda Rhimes <laughs> at her best, whatever. Geetha Ranganathan over at Netflix, uh, excuse me, over at Bloomberg Intelligence covering Netflix, also at her best. We thank you as always. Uh, she covers everything. She's got she's got her, her series critiques. She's got her financials down. What doesn't she do? You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. One of the big questions in this market, Simone, is what is getting priced in and what actually isn't. And I think the consensus here is that the, whereas the equity markets are taking kind of a wait and see approach, you're seeing a lot more volatility in the bond markets uh, and and in the FX markets off the kind of debt ceiling drama. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of very interesting picture in terms of the near term um, treasury yields, some as high as I think 6% um, looking ahead for the next couple of months uh, or month or so uh, as we get through this debt ceiling conundrum. Um, but then, you know, we, we return to the long term fundamentals. Is the economy headed for a recession? Obviously, the debt ceiling, the, uh, the US defaulting might push us over the edge, but uh, if not, then it's a bit more of a complicated question. It absolutely is. And, and perhaps one way to look at it, in addition to some of the other factors that are affecting it, look, we're still dealing with a very uh, now slowly turning hawkish Federal Reserve, James Bullard, Neil Kashkari, uh, very vocal about their thoughts, a BOE that's still saying we got to go tough on inflation, not to mention around the world, the question of just how long this growth is going to sustain, really dominating the market story and I wonder if that's the narrative that's going to kind of uh, move to the forefront after we get past the debt ceiling debate. Only a couple more days and we'll find out. Uh, let's talk about what the trade is here in that framing. Cam Harvey joins us, uh, the professor of finance over at the Fawqua School of Business over at Duke University. Now, I got to get this out of the way. I am a UVA alum, so I am sworn to hate Duke. It's Ooh, true, but rivalry. I think I'll make, I know, but I think I'll make an exception uh, for Cam Harvey because at the end of the day, smarts is what matters. Uh, Professor, walk us through your take here. Once we get past this debt ceiling story, what's the biggest risk? If we get past this debt ceiling story. I mean, we will. There's an inevitability to it. <laughs> uh, Professor, uh, what do you think? Yeah, it's so <clears throat> the situation uh, is fairly clear to me. Um so I'm the guy that invented this model that shows that inverted yield curves, so when the short rate is higher than the long rate, uh, predicts recessions. And the record is pretty impressive, eight out of eight since the mid-1960s without a false signal. And uh, in January, we had a full quarter of uh, inversion in, in the fall of 22, and the model was signaling recession, and I went on record saying that I thought it was a false signal. So it was about time to have a false signal, and uh, the other sort of economic dynamics look fairly strong, especially with the excess demand for labor. But what I said uh, the last time I was on the show was there was one major caveat, 
And that caveat was that the Fed needed to stand down, that they'd done their job uh, in terms of inflation. And if they pushed the rates any higher at the short end, if they increased the inversion severity, that that would put the banking system at risk. And the Fed did not stand down. And the Fed has put the banking system at risk. We've seen uh, in March some spectacular uh, failures, over $500 billion of assets and banks that went down. And I strongly suspect that there are many other banks that have been zombified by the negative um, yield curve uh, situation, just creates stress in the financial system. This means that banks are less likely to make those important loans to businesses. There's a credit squeeze, and this makes things worse. Wait, so, I thought the well, regional banking crisis was over because, you know, shares rallied for the for the last uh, little bit, though I guess we're down today on the KBW Bank Index about 1.6%. Take me through how we start seeing this stress again from now. So do you really think this is over? I think it's wishful thinking. <laughs> so anytime the Fed says in their FOMC statement, oh, well, the banking system is sound and secure uh, without providing the data. So, so why not convince me? Why not go through uh, the bank's uh, balance sheets? And, and show me that there are no other banks with negative equity, that we don't have these zombie banks. Well, that just isn't done. And I just don't buy it. It's cheap talk. So uh, they've got the data. Why not release the data? And any time that the Fed is increasing rates, think about the banking model is really simple. Uh, you pay out to depositors. So that's the cost. And then you receive money from your loans and your investments, let's say in government bonds. So when you invert that yield curve, when you push the short-term rates up uh, and the long-term rates don't go up as much, that that turns your business model upside down. It creates stress. And indeed, what we've seen is that some of the banks are really struggling uh, to increase their savings rates. So my bank is one of the too big to fail banks. And I was told last week that the savings rate that I'm getting is two basis points and other banks are one basis point. And, and, and what's the result there? Well, um, I said, I'm going to transfer my uh, savings to a money market fund. So it sucks money out of the banking system. And again, it has the same effect that uh, it makes it more difficult for companies to get uh, loans when uh, that deposit base is taken out. So I think the banking system we would love to think that, oh, well, the regional banking crisis is over. I, I just don't buy it. I'm much more skeptical, and I want to see the evidence, not just the uh, the talk. Uh, well, Professor, that's one one piece of the equation. Let's go back to kind of the economic piece of it. To your point yes. on, on the model, I want to look at this two-tenths curve. I mean, a, a gauge that I will say a lot of people think is broken and has been inverted for quite some time. We almost got to that negative 200. I think the record inversion that we saw back in the 80s, we're at negative 63 right now and that twos tens conversion. But it feels like we've been talking about this recession around the corner for about two years. Professor, when is that recession actually going to hit? So the model, my actual model is the 10 year minus three month that I published in 1986. 
And the lead time to recession is, is not fixed. It varies between six months and 18 months. So um, the, the 10 minus uh, three month has been inverted seven months. So, uh, so again, you need to have um, some historical perspective on this model. Uh, it gives you advanced lead to a recession, though the lead time isn't, uh, isn't fixed. It's variable. And the model is also very good at uh, the duration of recession. So the duration of an inversion is very closely linked to the duration of a recession. And again, we've been inverted for seven months right now. And again, it's not unusual for this to play out uh, well after the inversion. Indeed, uh, sometimes the recession starts once the curve uh, has gone back to normal. Right. Well, uh, but the inversion happened in the past. Certainly something we're going to be keeping an eye on. Uh, we thank you, as always, for your time, Professor. Professor of Finance over at the Fakwa School of Business over at Duke University. Uh, Cam Harvey, we thank you, as always. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.